Hey everyone, here's another Patreon preview. We continue our discussion on Ross Ashby. Our previous one was about uh, Ashby's Law of Variety. This one is more about the homeostat, what the machine did, and what it means, as well as the ways in which we can apply it to many of the systems that we try to create within our unions and in society on a more broad scale. If you want the whole thing, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It is where we get all of our support as an entirely listener-supported show, and so we really, really appreciate it if you would support us there. And otherwise, here's a nice little clip, and I hope you enjoy it. And, and just to make a few things that we may have already explained, but with a lack of clarity, clearer, and also for folks who may want some kind of deep dive into the actual internal functioning of the machine, the best resource that I could find that explains it with any measure of brevity is from the British, uh, the British Library's science blog. So I'm going to read this clip, um, this quotation really quickly. The homeostat, a bulky and somewhat baroque machine built from military surplus parts, had a single purpose, to regain stability in response to perturbations in its environment. It is hard to convey precisely how the homeostat worked. Set up as four identical units connected to each other via electrical inputs and outputs, each unit was topped with electrically conducing veins dipped in water troughs. Like oscillographs, the veins moved back and forth in the trough, reacting to the electrical input from their environment. The output from other blocks in the setup, and each block had an electrical output determined by the position of the vein in the trough. If the vein was directly in the middle of the trough, the electrical output was zero. If, however, it was positioned any other place in the trough, it provided electrical output to the other blocks, affecting the position of the veins it was connected to. Thus, when the machine was set in action by pushing a vein out of position, the veins on all four units would react by moving back and forth in reaction to their respective environments. What made the homeostat so interesting, however, was its ability to return to equilibrium once a vein had been upset. Each of the units was constructed to also produce electric feedback to their respective veins, depending on the conductivity of the vein. This feedback was determined according to a random table, and the machine would cycle through the table as long as the electrical output was, was not zero. Eventually, however, the veins, cycling through random states, would come to a halt as each block found the appropriate feedback configuration. For Ashby, the return to equilibrium that the homeostat demonstrated was equivalent to the brain's, whether human or animal, capacity for learning. The return to equilibrium demonstrated by the homeostat also showed how what only seems purposeful can come about by randomness, and Ashby believed this principle of feedback mechanisms spontaneously restoring equilibrium was a governing principle in nature. Indeed, in 1945, he noted that he had he had decided to follow in Darwin's footsteps. Like with the homeostat's return to equilibrium, he viewed a species evolutionary adaptation to its environment as a return to equilibrium and is only apparently purposeful. This tendency towards what Ashby called ultra-stability was referred to by Norbert Wiener as no less than, quote, one of the great philosophical contributions of the present day. Eventually, Ashby was invited to present it at the 9th Macy Conference for Cybernetics in 1950. Ooh, so I hope that that wasn't too technical for you. <laughs> I think that like it gave a little bit of like more of a physical like uh, mm-hmm. imagery of it, and I think it'll help 
uh, different sorts of brains understand it in a different way. Because I think that I got more of a more of a visual, like a mental visual of what the machine is doing. Right. It, and it really gives you an idea of the kind of decision tree that it's operating with, where it's like, uh, it, it's doing Rubik's Cube things, right? It's like, oh, I can get this needle on this one of the four stacks stable, but is that going to produce a greater or a worse result in stability for the other stacks at this moment in time? And so you can kind of, I imagine, I, I can't, there's no video of it because it was destroyed before it was easy to take video of various things lying around university laboratory rooms. Um, but I imagine that once they set it in motion, it, it would produce all kinds of manner of patterns and clicks before eventually sort of settling down into a stable rhythm before eventually resuming not moving at all. So I did also include in the notes a photo of the homeostat and Ashby's hand-drawn diagram, uh, which are both available on the British Library Science blog if any viewers want to go take a look at them or listeners want to go take a look. I also just have always really thought these sort of like electromechanical early computers are just so cool just because like you can actually see literal moving parts in Mm -hmm. them. And like, look, I'm I'm sorry, like electrical and computer engineering nerds, but I, I like to be able to visually see the machine working. And I look at a circuit board and I'm like, I know that works, but to me there might as well be a little wizard inside this thing making it work. (laughs) Yeah. Invisible electromagnetic forces are not fun to watch unless they're instantiated in cool needles that swing around in troughs. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or in like a neat, fun uh, physics class toy, like uh, Mm a Mandegraaff generator. Definitely. Well, and I also think it's really interesting. uh, And this is something that I think is pertinent to labor that there was a random table built into the machine, which is to say that in order to be effective, the homeostat could not only do what it knew already would work. If it did that, it would settle into patterns that would not learn and would not break out of, of any given. So, so like if you, if you flipped one of the magnets around or one of the fields or whatever, if you disrupted one of the needles the same way every time, 10 times in a row, and there were no random table, and then you disrupted the machine in a different way, it's very reasonable to assume that it would just try to fix it the same way that it had fixed it from you doing the same thing 10 times in a row. Whereas with the random table introduced, you could get this machine used to operating in any kind of configuration for any length of time. And then if you threw it a curveball, it might take it longer, but it would eventually because of the random table have the inputs necessary to fail appropriately to learn what the correct thing is to do. And I think that when we talk about the ossification of labor unions or, you know, relying on old tactics that are inherited from the, you know, weird business unionism years or, or, or relying on things that are like a hundred years old and maybe don't have a place in the modern day is just ridiculous. It's not ridiculous to try them. You should absolutely try them and see if they work. But if they don't work, you need to be really, really willing to just hit that abort button and abort whatever plan you're working on, whatever thing that's not working. And if it feels like you're starting from scratch, maybe starting from scratch is the most effective thing you can do right now. And it's worth not discounting that. Yeah. So 
I preface this asterisk. I have no idea if this concept is it actually works the way that it's popularly understood. So nutritionists or fitness experts don't come at me about this. But I feel like the random table is serving a similar role to the concept that people throw out there of muscle confusion. Like the idea that if you, you know, you're doing the same lift over and over and over and over again, that your body's going to get used to it and it's not going to see like a continuous growth like it would at the early stages of an exercise regimen because it's because it's like you've done the same thing over and over again. And so not only have you gotten stronger, but your body's also gotten very specifically used to that exact thing. And so their idea is like, well, you have to change things up constantly and come from different angles because it forces your body to adapt to different inputs and that causes it to increase like muscle growth or whatever. I again, I don't know. That could be complete. So you're bullshit. saying this machine doesn't skip leg day. But yes, yeah, that's the <laughs> idea. The machine does not skip leg day. Well, I mean, that's really, really great. And I think I, I think building muscle is a really great example of like you need to fail to succeed in in a in a sense because when you work out, what are you doing? You are gently destroying your muscle mm. fabric in a in a pattern that is generated by lifting the heavy weight. And then your body is going to take your rest time to restore that muscle and build it up a little bit stronger so that the next time you do that specific thing, it will be more prepared for it because your body is essentially a homeostat. But if you just keep doing the same thing, eventually your body's going to make a different decision. And it's like, well, maybe instead of letting the bicep rip a little bit and then fixing it while he sleeps... I'm just going to brace the bicep in a different way so he doesn't damage it while he's lifting. And now you're just wasting time at the gym, gaining nothing by lifting this heavy thing. Nobody wants to be doing that. So, I mean, <laughs> right. the same thing, it's the same thing we're thinking about with a union. Like if, if you, if there's a tactic that you haven't tried and you're scared that you're going to fail or it's going to damage your union or create untoward side effects, maybe try it in a limited or controlled manner so that you can have some control over the damage that it does and keep it down to a level like the very gentle tearing of muscle when you're weightlifting so that it can be instructive and something you can learn and grow from instead of something that simply like instead of just, you know, tearing your ACL and ending up in the hospital, which is what I think a lot of organizations do when they think the only options are to not do something or to commit whole hog, which I think both of those are bad plans in most situations. Well, I, I think you can also compare that like if we're talking about the way that a, a labor union could implement something like this because obviously it like there's real concerns that people have about trying new stuff and not just because you know they're ossified in conservative thinking but because like the stakes in union organizing are pretty high. Sure. Like if you try out a new organizing method on a uh, a union local or, or like a method of resistance to like the boss putting imposing shitty conditions on you and it doesn't work and like people get fired or people get sued or something like these are always potential outcomes or just you know even even not something like that that but like it doesn't work and workers put a lot of effort into something and it doesn't get what they thought they were going to get what they were told they were going to get and maybe some people start to lose a bit of faith in in the union or something and so i can get you know there's when there's actual stakes on that there's not it's not necessarily wrong to be a bit cautious but i that's where i think you know things like try testing stuff out in sort of a simulated role play environment cuz that's like people do that stuff all the time and that's mm -hmm. where you can like 
in the uh, you know way to try and learn it better. It, it's not just you when you have somebody who role plays as the boss. You don't just be like, well, this is how I think they're going to react. So do this. Well, you do that once or twice, or maybe you do it a bunch of times because you think that's the most likely response. But you got to tell that person to be like, hey, any way you think they could respond, we're going to do one of those. Mm-hmm. And anything you don't think. Mike, it's not likely, but it's possible. We got to try that out yeah. because mm-hmm. it gives you that opportunity. And you're never going to be able to anticipate any everything, but it gives you that opportunity to prepare, and that can make all the difference in the world. I think this Absolutely. also well, uh, speaks a little bit to, and this is calling to a little bit to the reading group that's going on in the Discord, the No Shortcuts thing that um, Jay McAlevey talks about, structure tests of trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to yes. actually like mobilize people in certain aspects and to continually do these little bits of, like, we're going to have a basic meeting. Now we're going to have a meeting that's a little bit more important. Or this time we're going to have a little bit of an action and we're going to go do a, like a uh, information picket and like just these kinds of little bits of, of action to really see what the actual power of the structure is so that you mm-hmm. when you actually do that slightly bigger action you know more because you've learned through those those different tests the actual effectiveness of the organization well yeah you're like a you're like someone in the weight room listening to their body like you go over and you try to pick up a certain like you know um you're trying to bench press a certain amount of weight and you're like, Oh my God, this is just too heavy for me right now. You know, you, you, you give up, you stop doing that, but then you go over and and you do, I don't know, a lot of different exercises. You do the leg press machine and you're like, this feels, you know, ridiculously light. Well, it's a good thing that you did it ridiculously light because a leg press machine can kill you. So now you go put a little bit more weight on and and you you kind of you feel comfortable with this so you move on or you didn't feel comfortable with this so let's back it up why didn't we feel comfortable and what are those elements that we can work on so right and and i feel like there's actually there's like really so many ways that this applies to labor organizing like i would specifically like when you we zoom out a little bit so we're not talking about on the individual level but we're talking about the longer term when you look at the ways in which the state and the ruling class have responded to different organizing tactics because the, and I think it demonstrates this and the way that you see this adaptation and the necessity of variety like so often, because for instance, think about the sit down strike as a tactic when that was first launched that, you know, that was not something that had always been done. That was a novel tactic and it was incredibly effective when it was launched and the bosses had like no answer for it. They tried a bunch of things and they kept failing and they're like, fuck, (laughs) this is such a good tactic. We have no way to defend against it. And that's when they brought in their Trump card, the state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they had to basically go, they basically had to go around. They're like, their, their little homeostat engine, their, you know, all the brains they're getting together to come up. How are we going to beat the sit down strike? We're going to use militia or we're going to, we're going to pay the police to try and get off. That's not working. And so they get all these little brains functioning as homeostats, trying to come up with ideas for how they're going to adjust it. And they keep failing and they keep failing. They're going up against this tactic that the unions are using. And so they're just, they, because the ruling class has this as the privilege, are just like, oh, all right, well, we're just going to break the machine then. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we're just going to completely change the rules that we've all been operating under. Because it's like, we've had this set, of criteria that like form how the world works and we're all working to the same one. And then they're just like, well, 
we can't figure out how to beat this, so we're going to go in and enter God mode into the, yep. <laughs> into the you know console commands there and basically change the law, invoke Taft-Hartley, say that you can't do sit-down, or and I actually, for sit-down strikes, I don't think they had to use Taft-Hartley for that. It was more just like property rights and stuff. But it's making it clear that now there's a new piece of, cri- like, the a new aspect of the operating environment mm-hmm. that you're working in that is now different. They had yeah. to go that far, and they've had to do that with multiple different tactics. And you notice they don't have to do that with a lot of the tactics that we see used. And because they've found that a lot of you know tactics, like perhaps repeating the same top-down, staff-driven campaigns that have been used for years and years and years with diminishing returns that they don't need to ban those because they've got other methods developed by like union busting law firms and by tweaking laws and stuff where they're at the point where they don't see those tactics as a threat. And that I think though, again, highlights it's like, well, if that tactic isn't hitting, you're going to need to change it. And thus the importance of experimentation. Yeah. They're just attenuating your variety basically down to zero with regards to that tactic when they make it illegal. And then your options at this point to reintroduce your variety as workers are either to come up with something new and equally as effective or, and I'm not telling you, you should do this, but it is on the table. Simply break the law. Breaking the law Mm -hmm. is a great way to introduce variety into a situation. It's not always going to have all desirable results, but it will always have results, which, is an interesting thing to say about it. Uh, <laughs> so as long as we're talking about the applications of these kind of ideas, I think it'd be really worth getting into that on a deeper level because otherwise this is just an abstract description of a machine that was destroyed in the 70s by water damage. So... <laughs> by the 